bad, not bad. Uh, hello, everyone. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We'll go right to the source, which is the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we are on the final petition, which will, once we're done with this, and a quick summary of, our, of what we have learned over four months of studying prayer. <laughs> I can't believe it's been that long. Uh, and then we'll uh, move on to something new, uh, something new I'm pretty excited about. Uh, so for that, let's uh, open up and pray ourselves. Let's be uh, ready to learn and to be thankful. The best way to learn is to be a thankful listener, a humble and thankful listener. And so to, if you need to, uh, to make yourself just at least um, uh, put in God's hands anything that would be a distraction and just uh, humble yourself before God's Word and relax and enjoy uh, His Word. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for a day in which we can live as every day with the opportunity to live in your world on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for you, for, for the gift of your Son that is through his work, through his crucifixion, has made us your children to those who have believed upon him. And as such, we have been sanctified, justified. We are yours forever. We have been saved and delivered from sin, from our sin and from the sin we were born with in Adam. And we have been, Father, uh, given your will and a future, and all of it is beautiful. Uh, that we are tempted, Father, in, in a world uh, that is dark and without you, that we still exist in. It tempts us, it distracts us, it persecutes us and brings suffering upon us. Our own bodies that are uh, of, a, of the fall also causes heartache, causes pain, causes problems, and tempts us to sin as well. We ask, Father, that through your word and through your spirit that we would see what it is to overcome these things and to live with the joy and righteousness and courage and power that you have given us by means of your spirit in the new life that is in the new world. We ask this, Father, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. There's uh, a lot of dangers in life. What's the most dangerous thing? Things. You know, if you were to make a list of, you know, what's the most dangerous thing to the human race, you know, where would you begin? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd probably start maybe with natural disasters. Uh, falling off a cliff, getting hit by a car, maybe cancer. Uh, you know, what, what's the most dangerous thing? You know, uh, your car breaking down in a shady neighborhood. Living in Portland, I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe it's COVID. For some, it's global warming, you know. Oh, uh, it's, that wouldn't be high on my list. I don't think it would be on my list. But, you know, all of these things, you know, and immediately, if you were to go around and ask people in the world, you know, what are these things? It would depend on where they lived, what they grew up in, what was their experiences. And I wonder how many would think about their spiritual lives. Now, we, and so what God has given us in his scripture is things to beware. He exhorts us to do this, not do that. And uh, one of the ways that we discover the areas in life that are very dangerous to us, to our spiritual lives, is to see, uh, and it takes a bit of work to do, is to see the major themes in the Bible. Now, what are the major themes in the Bible, especially in the New Testament? Not that that ignores the old. But what was the most dangerous things to say Israel? You know, what, what got them in trouble? Natural disaster? No. Enemies, surrounding nations? They ended up being very dangerous types, but it was only because they rejected God. God made them a promise. Five of you would chase a thousand, that kind of... I always get the numbers wrong on that. I never know what the low one is and the high one is, but 
Um, it's, you know, God said I'd protect you. you know, what got Israel in trouble? What got David in trouble? What got Moses in trouble? What was, what was most dangerous to Moses? Not trusting. What was the most dangerous to the Exodus generation? Why did they die in the wilderness? Because it was rough? No. Because they wouldn't trust. They would not trust. They would not believe the promises of God. So, what's the most dangerous thing in life? It's actually nothing physical or material, although those things do cause us to be afraid, and at times rightly so. And God has a plan to help us get over the fear that we have concerning everything. Everything. He says to us, nothing happens in your life unless I give the go-ahead. Nothing. I am sovereign. Yeah, I've let Satan run this world right now. And yes, your body is riddled with sin and it's decaying. But nothing happens, even death, without my say-so. So when we look at the major themes of the Scripture, we have to read and digest, read and digest again, read and digest again. I just I was watching one of my professors was telling me how um, in Thessalonians in First and Second Thessalonians you have there's passages about which seem to be about the rapture and the second coming and if you and and you know a lot of people will turn to those passages and <clears throat> say like this is the whole purpose of the book of the books of Thessalonians is for this eschatology. And he said to, for him to figure out, you know, the main theme of, of what Paul was really writing about in those letters, he had to read it over and over and over again. And the reason being is because he already had the preconceived notion that Paul was writing about the rapture. And although he includes it in the letter, it's not really, it, it's not the main point of the letter. He, he, Paul includes the rapture to teach the Thessalonians about something else. Uh, that is more important, which is their living, the way that they're living. You know, none of us are going to speed up the rapture or make it come. We don't know when it's coming uh, and if it comes in our lifetime or not. So to get main themes, we've got to be students. And, uh, you know, it's, we're, we're in a world where, you know, uh, a, a, a long period of time concentrating on one thing is hard. For a lot of people. And you know the only way to learn how to do that is to do it. You've got to train your brain to concentrate just like you train a muscle to get strong. You do it by exercise. You train yourself to read by reading. You know? if, you, if you look at uh, you know, uh, sh- television shows... Uh, and, you know, this course I'm taking on, on, on visuals, this particular course I'm taking is specifically for Internet teaching. And if you're going to teach on Internet, you need to grab people's attention. And I get that. But the whole point of grabbing someone's attention when it comes to doctrine is to lead them somewhere and to lead them to be students. And students learn to, and if you're not a great reader, it doesn't all matter that much because especially with the technology we have, you can listen to it. I mean, and on the internet, you can get any Bible translation you want read to you on my phone. It has a thing there where it just reads to you the scripture. You can listen to the whole thing. So you don't have to technically read it. But to understand it, you've got to concentrate on it. And we've got to learn this. Our brains have got to learn to concentrate and to focus on something. What I meant by the television shows, if you notice, they'll have the camera on one, one take, and then it's there for only a few seconds, and then it's somewhere else, it's somewhere else, it's somewhere else, it's a different angle, it's over here, it's over there. And it's constantly changing because that's what we want. It, it, it entertains our eyes. And then you go to church, and what do you get? <laughs> I mean, I don't even move that much. Actually, the way we have the camera set up, if I move over here, I'm kind of out of the picture. And I've wanted to come and say, well, look, I have a cordless mic. Look at this picture over here. And then the, the, the guys back there are like, please don't do that. <laughs> You're not there. 
But, you know, it's something to do. I, I want to keep your attention. I do. And moving does that. Putting pictures up does that. I'm, as you can see, I'm doing more of that, and I'm going to do even more. But if we're going to hold on to the main themes of the Scripture, a bunch of flashing pictures aren't going to do it. It'll help us, but it's not going to really bring us to what we need. And what we need is insight. And insight into Scripture means reading, thinking, reading, praying. And prayer here is of great importance, as we'll see today in this lesson Jesus is setting us up to be ready to live by giving us this prayer. This prayer is preventative medicine. Because before the temptations come, we've got to have our minds set on the goal, on the prize that is for today. And if our minds are on that, and we're educated scripturally, spiritually, to know what our goal is, then when the temptations come, which are always to draw us away from what it is that we're supposed to be doing right now or thinking right now, uh, we won't fall for it as easily, I should say. It's not going to make us sinless. Now, for instance, when it comes to themes, some of these are easier to find than others. So take, for instance, the book of Colossians. It has a main theme. There's a reason. And here's, you know, Paul didn't sit down and say, you know, we need scripture for the Bible. I better start writing. You know, that's not. There was an issue in Colossi, in Colossi, not Colossi. There was an issue. There was a problem. And there was a reason why Paul wrote that letter. The spiritual life of the people there, where he was told, Paul never went to Colossi, never even met these people. But their pastor, their head guy, had come to Paul while Paul was imprisoned. His name was Epaphras. And he told Paul about what was going on. False doctrines had infiltrated that church. And they were of a kind that were of a Jewish Gnostic mix, meaning Judaism and Gnosticism. Uh, Paul was very familiar with both because he was from both worlds. Paul was a Greek. and well, He wasn't Greek. He was fully Jewish. But he would, lived in a Greek world. But he was also raised to become a Pharisee in the Judaism world. The Colossians were being very persecuted as well, and so from false doctrine and persecution, Paul writes this letter. Now, to us, this is inspired by God the Holy Spirit. So while Paul is saying, wow, there's an issue at this church, I better write to them, God the Holy Spirit is using Paul to create a document that's going to be forever. And that document has in it the things that God wants us to know 2,000 years later. God is smart enough and powerful enough to do this. And so we find out from the letter to the Colossians that when we're persecuted or we go through suffering, we're in a dangerous place. How we respond to that is of extreme importance. So when I'm suffering, when I'm going through tribulation, if someone's persecuting me, judging me, that is a dangerous place because in the Scripture, a lot is written about it. Also, false doctrine. Now, that's in a bunch of places, not just in Colossae. And that means that no matter what a man says, even if it's me behind the pulpit or anybody else, anything you hear, that if, it, if, if you're going to judge its truth, you have to be careful. If someone's telling you how to live the spiritual life, it better be backed up by what's in the Word of God. Uh, in Colossae, they fell for some things that weren't from the Word of God, and for our instance, I had here, there's a few other books that we could look at. You know, what was the problem with the Corinthians? Most of us kind of know this, right? But this is one of the things that we're going to look at in the future. We're going to look at every book in the New Testament, not verse by verse, because that would take us about 30 years, and I'd be dead before I even got close to the end if I had a replacement. But you guys are older than me, so you wouldn't be around either, you know. But anyway, we're just going to, we're going to be looking at them as a whole, like real snapshots of what are the main themes of these of these these books. And the Corinthians we know were had gone to a very immoral life, and the Corinthians had thought, look, the holiness of living isn't near as a, as important 
as being forgiven and, and the grace of God. And so we don't have to be concerned about the holiness of living and, and living righteously. That's, that's not important. What's important is we can do whatever we want, claim the grace of God. The, the Corinthians got involved in immorality, arrogance. And you know what else they got involved in, which is amazing to see in our world right now? Tribalism. I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. I'm of Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Uh, I'm of Christ. I'm of Apollos. I'm rich. You're not. They, they got involved in tribalism in the church. What do we see in our nation right now? It's full of it. This nonsense of, you know, if you're, you know, <laughs> right now, if you're a transvestite, black, what, what else? But I can say woman. What? Midget? <laughs> you can't. No, you can't say that anymore. They're little people. <laughs> or the the vertically challenged. I don't know what you call them. But right, if there's there's you hit that like that's jackpot. Jackpot. What is that? What does God say? Right. Blessed are the midgets. No. Blessed are the poor in spirit, in spirit. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. Right? Why? What's the problem with people? It's not their color, gender, or where they're from. In fact, it's several times Paul says neither male or female, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, uh, you know, a Greek or Jew. There's none of that anymore. There's no tribalism anymore because God has given us a new nature, a new creature, and a new world. And in that new world, we don't judge people on that criterion. In fact, the greatest of us is the servant. All of that is gone. But, so, is it an issue? Well, it's a very big issue. In the church, is there tribalism today? You bet. You know, what's your view on water baptism? No, go over to that church. Don't talk to that church. Yeah, what's your view on pre-tribulational rapture? Even though you're my brother and sister in Christ, what if you disagree with me? Don't even talk to me. I don't want to be anything, have anything to do with you. What are you Pentecostal? Oh, you're crying. I don't even want to be near you. You probably start speaking in tongues and flip-flopping on the ground like a dead fish. Well, no, a live fish. They don't flip-flop. I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, there is. See, when you see the themes of the Bible, you know, hey, wait a minute. Why does God talk so much about this? Because it's a dangerous place. The thing we're going to focus on uh, here for at least this week, and then um, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll be done with this final um, petition, is in this petition, which you, you can read here with me in Matthew 6.13, and do not be led into temptation. Now, twice I've, I've mentioned this word parasmos or parasmos, that's the way you say it. Means is always used in the New Testament for temptation to evil, temptation by Satan. And that makes sense because in Matthew 4, just a little bit before the right before the Sermon on the Mount gets taught, which starts in chapter 5, Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted, parasmos, same word, by whom? By the devil. And so we have here, uh, Jesus is telling us to pray, don't lead us to whom, this is to the Father, lead us in, sorry, and do not lead us into temptation. Which means, and again, we're, we're, our mind says, wait a minute, why would God lead me into temptation? It's the wrong question. The, what we're looking at here is, what Jesus is getting us to think about every day is our desire on which way do we want to go? And temptation leads us away, or can. So we want the narrow road or the new and living way so badly that we would rather be in a place where there's no temptation at all. Now that doesn't mean that we're not going to get tempted because we are. But this is our desire. Lead me, Father. Father says, where? Where would you want to go? Because, right, God is given to us in us now, in this age, to assist us, to help us. 
Right? Jesus calls him the helper. Jesus called himself the helper. Paraclete in the Greek, it means to help you. Now, he's not going to force us to go where we're to go. If he's assisting us, see, if we're assisting him as if God needed any help, then he'd be saying, we're going to go this way, and I would be helping him go that way. As if he needs my help, he doesn't. If he's assisting me, then I have to make the decision where to go. And he's going to assist me on that. Now, the only way that God's going to assist me on is on the right path. So you're praying. Jesus is setting us up here to every day pray to consider where do I want to go today? Lead us not into temptation from Satan, but deliver us from the evil. Really, this should be evil one. And what is the evil one trying to do? Get us off the place of power. Get us away from the place of wisdom. Get us away into the realm of the old world where we're idiots. See, in, in the Word of God, we're wise. Because God has made us wise. We're outside of the truth, bumbling idiots. And that's where Satan wants us. So, <clears throat> for instance, the theme of Galatians is that salvation is by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. That's Galatians. Salvation is by faith in Christ, not by the works of the Mosaic Law. And this was written not to unbelievers, but to believers. And this, the danger is that we can, part of this temptation, which we're going to focus on next, is the temptation to put myself back under the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law holds no authority in this age anymore. In the old age, yes. Now, no, because it's been fulfilled by Christ. Now, how do I know that? It's because not only in Galatians has it beautifully, succinctly, and powerfully in chapter 3 and part of chapter 4, that's Paul's, that's what he's doing there. Because the Galatians had been fooled. Like the Corinthians, like, uh, like in Colossae and in all other churches, there was, after Paul had left, the church would be established. He would establish those as elders or pastors and they would be teaching, and then, you know, they're brand new believers. And then Jews would be in their midst, or those who knew of Judaism, and say, well, what are you doing with Moses' law? Are you just throwing it out? And they'd be like, well, I don't know. What do we do with it? Now, Paul had already taught them this, but Paul's gone now. Can't call him. So these people come in or they're part of the congregation who are saying, well, look, we've got to follow the Mosaic Law. We can't abandon it. You're abandoning the whole Old Testament. And what they don't understand is that to, to not be under the authority of the law does not mean that there are things in the law that still hold sway. Uh, it's not, I'm not abandoning the Old Testament. It's just that I'm, not, I'm no longer under the authority of the Mosaic Law. I'm under someone else's authority. And that's the freedom of this age. <coughs> so, that, you know, that's one of the dangers that is addressed multiple times. Not just in Galatians. Uh, in 2 Corinthians it's addressed. Uh, in Hebrews, almost the whole book is addressed to this question of, are we under the old priesthood, the old law, or are we under the new? Is there an old covenant and a new covenant? There is. Well, which one are we under? And we're under the new. So when every day we pray the Lord's Prayer, and I highly recommend this first thing, in order, so that you, you have your, your spiritual head on, screwed on straight before you face anything or anyone, is that we use the Lord's Prayer as averting temptation. Alright, think about it. It is first off. This is the final tempt- the final petition. Deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. The first three t- the first three petitions are about us worshiping and adoring the Father. We worship and adore the Father. His what? His person. Hallowed be your name. His work. Your kingdom come. His will. Your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. This is our adoration and our worship of the Father, His work, His wisdom, and His will. And then we desire in our next, now that the petitions turn to us, give us today our daily bread, we've desired contentment with God. So before I'm tempted with materialism or that I don't have enough or I find out that, uh, I don't know, I lost some money or I was charged too much for this and I start to get angry, that I'm content with what God has given me. And then I have confessed myself a sinner. Petition number five, forgive us our sins. And we remember I have more sins than I know that I do. Forgive us our sins. And I also know that I'm forgiven, so I'm reminded of that. I receive God's forgiveness and gratitude. And this helps me and enables me to forgive others. You see, if I don't pray this before I face someone today who needs my forgiveness, then I'm, I'm on my back feet. I'm, you know, I'm on my heels. Instead of having a solid foundation of what? God's grace and forgiveness of me, and I forgive all others. And then, knowing that our love of God is true and our life, of, life on earth is provided for, we pursue the new and living way with all we've got. Right? Because I'm not worried about myself and I'm not worried about my life and I love my Lord. I need to love Him more. I know that. But I can't lie to Him about these petitions. Hallowed be Your name. Amen to that. And now I can truly give myself to the spiritual life. And such a place is the best place to be. If these six petitions are true about you, it's a condition of the soul of a person that is of the most powerful quality. There's nothing more powerful than this in a human being. A born-again believer who knows his or her father, who worships his father, who longs for his kingdom and looks for it, who knows they're not members of this world, but members of the world to come, citizens of heaven, who are, have been released from material lust, have been released from the shame that comes with sin, who can forgive anybody, who longs to do the will of God, and who throws their whole life into the spiritual life. With freedom, you know, not seeking to get things from God or, you know, motivations not to be the big spiritual guy, but to, in true humility, I just, I know that this spiritual life is the only life. It is the most powerful place to be. Nothing can stop you. This is the strength of the new self living in the new world. The new world is heaven. And we're members of it. That's also in Colossians. Colossians 1.13 Transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is the life again of the new self living in the new world. And here's what God does. Maggie has a new word she's been showing off to me. Well, she said it the other day. She said, that is electrifying. We were like, what? Where did you get that from? And she, she mentioned some little video that we, we like to watch. And I was like, well, I don't remember that. So we watched the little video. This little video is about all the planets. And, you know, and it's Earth and then you know, all the other planets. And they have this little thing. And you learn about the planets. And somebody's electrifying. I can't remember which planet it is, but and this we watched it last night. And Maggie, she elbows me. We're all sitting on the couch. She elbows me, and she says, "See, Dad, that's where I that's where I got it. Electrifying. I love it." God has made an electrifying plan for the for us, for all believers, because we're this new self in a new world. Yet we remain in the alien. Well, we're aliens in this world. That's how Peter calls us. First Peter chapter one. Alien in the old world. We remain in the old world with all its craziness and its problems and its evil and its darkness and its sin. And we remain in these bodies. The old body that's crucified. I can't get around without it. Right? <laughs> I can't get around. I, I, we need it. We don't like it. The older we get. And we're the source of your temptation from your flesh is this infiltrated your brain of course as well 
And Satan uses it. And we get dry. he draws us. Like fish on a line, he draws us. It's like, come on, come on. But you see, if we're, <coughs> by again, if the petitions of the Lord's Prayer are true, you know, Jesus said, if you hear these words of mine and you act upon them, you're a house built upon a rock. That's what made me think of getting an image like that. You know, there are, there are these lighthouses out in the middle of nowhere that are, they will remain and remain, right? And, and that's how we are to be. Not to be torn away from that which is a position of spiritual power. So, how many ways does he tempt us? In how many, in how many various ways can he tempt us? And there's so many. So, what I plan to do here is to just pick some of the ones that are really highlighted in the Scripture. And, you know, there are some... Not that we shouldn't talk about them, but there are some that we know, like, it's very obvious. Like, if you have a problem with a certain chemical or with a sexual desire or with a person or with anger, like, you know these things are temptations for you. And, you know, those are there. They are in the Scripture. But what's hammered upon in this scripture, what's stated over and over again are things that I want to focus on. And one, one thing that would, you know, maybe we wouldn't think about it so easily or quickly is the fact that I'm tempted to get myself back under the law. And it is not just in, uh, in Galatians, but, it, but in a lot of places. But we'll look in Galatians a little bit. Now, one of the things we need to know is something about the law. What is it? Well, God gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai. And the whole thing is a revelation given from God. We see in other passages that God used the agency of angels, but, you know... we, we don't get a lot of detail on that, but even if God sent an angel to Moses and say, here, write this down, this is part of the law, this is how you build the tabernacle, this is how you offer the proper sacrifices, and so on. These are the rules. That's from God. And what's important about that is that it's not from man. So if the law comes from God, it's coming from heaven, it comes from God, and it's not from a man... If we break a law that man makes, well, we might we have a case. We might say, well, that law is unconstitutional. And we're going to take it to the highest court. And we might have a case. And when I think of that, I always think, I saw this interview with uh, uh, Justice Scalia. Was it Antonio? This, he died a few years ago. But I saw this interview with him where he was, he was, talking about how hard it is to change the Constitution, you know, how to amend it, which is a good thing. He, he lamented that it was awfully hard. But he was saying, you know, back in the day, people used to say, there ought to be a law. That's what people used to say. Something was unfair. They'd say, there ought to be a law. And he says, nowadays, everybody says, that's unconstitutional. And he's like, when did it get to that level? You know, everything's constitutional. It was a man-made law. We might say, well, that law is unfair. Or we might have a case. What, what, what happens when God gives the law from heaven? We're going to say, well, you know what? Can I, you know, it's kind of like what Job did. With Job, when his whole life was turned upside down, he was like, he demanded, I want to know why. You, God, this is very unfair, right? As if you could be unfair. <clears throat> Moses, uh, sorry, uh, Job didn't say a word once God started speaking to him face to face. And, and that's a, that actually bears this point. If the law, the rule, the commandment comes from heaven, then I, I have no case against it other than to follow it. So, I follow it. Or I try. All of Israel said that they would keep the whole law. That's what God said. Yeah, right. And, uh, yeah. 
They said they would keep the law. Is that in here? Yeah. So here is the law, right? First two commands from the law. Should I walk over here? (laughs) You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. I I almost put up Charlton Heston up here. But I thought, you know, Charlton Heston would have been great for this. You have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol. Command number two. What do they? I mean, it, I don't think it's the same afternoon, but at least it's like a day or two later. There they are, violating the first two commandments, uh, building a golden calf, worshiping it. They called it Jehovah. It made Moses pretty mad. Yeah, there he is. That's not Charlton Heston either. That's uh, Gustav Dore, and so this leads us to the next point, which is. We have to understand that the law, which comes from God, was a gift, not to the new world, but to the old. And for two very important reasons. First and foremost, that the law is given to one people, not to all peoples. The Gentiles were not under the law. The Jews were. We wonder about this. (coughs) What was God was isolating and making his client nation unique. Only Israel had the law. It made them unique. And it's the reason why they've been hated all through history, all over the world. Because even after the dispersion, which was you know, after, after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and they had, the survivors had to go to various places, they ended up all over Europe and in Asia, but especially in Europe. What would they do when they got there? They'd gather together. Because what? They live under this. Nobody else does. And people would say, those Jews are peculiar. And in the old world, you know, what does the old world do? Do they go like, well, let's learn about what they believe and let's try to understand them and live peaceably with them. In the old world, let's get them, right? Persecute them, right? How long has the word anti-Semitism been around? Forever. Why? Because they're a peculiar people. Why did God want them to be so peculiar? From them and them alone would come the Scripture. There's not one word of Scripture in your Bible that isn't written by a Jew. And from them would come the Messiah. From them and them alone would come salvation. And they're the only ancient kingdom that still exists. So God gave them the law, made them peculiar, so that we would look at them, look upon them, and see from them the truth of the Word of God and the Messiah. Now secondly, the second reason for the law is, again, like I said before, it comes from God. And who keeps it all? Nobody. Everybody breaks it. So this revelation from God to all of Israel is what? You are all sinners. You are all sinners. Who among you is righteous? None. Not one. How often does the Bible speak of this? That all of us are sinners. The book of Romans especially. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yep. We've all violated God's law. And again, when that law comes directly from God and not from man, we have to say, well, I'm guilty. And this is a good thing. Now, uh, look at Matthew 5, 43. So, here's the thing, right? The law was a gift to the old world. Why? It isolated Israel to show us that something special was coming from them. And salvation was coming from them, the most important. And it showed us all that we were sinners. So, in this age, are we under the law? No. The law is fulfilled. 
It's not, I wouldn't say abolish, because Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right here in Matthew chapter 5, he said that. Um, so, but it has no authority over us. It is fulfilled. And so we scratch our heads and we say, well, if we're not under the law, then throw the Old Testament out. No, that's a big leap. <laughs> that's, you know, don't jump to crazy conclusions. You're, just, you're not under its authority. But the law has its place in the history of God's redemption. It's important for us to know what it is. Uh, secondly, we say, well, if we're not under the law anymore, we're no longer under its commands. And that is partially true. Uh, when you commit a sin, you are not required to sacrifice an animal, thank God. For me, it would be my cat on the porch. If Bree, if you're listening, that's your old cat, I'm sorry. But that is my least favorite animal in the world. But then after that, you know, what else do I get to sacrifice? I got nothing. I need a herd of bad cats. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, no, uh, what about you, you have to uh, go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover? Nope. No, the, the ceremonial hand washings, uh, sacrifices, all of that, it's Codex, one of the Codexes, Codex 2 or something, that is gone because all of it is fulfilled in Christ. If I'm sacrificing animals after Christ is the one true sacrifice, I am really just pretty much spitting on the cross. So, you know, it's, it's blasphemous. So I say, okay, those are gone. But what about, um, how about those things written on those tablets? Am I under those? Well, <laughs> so you can steal in the church? Uh, no. Make, I mean, nobody believes that. Even the, the crazy, the, the, we call them like hyper-dispensationalists where they just throw all Israel out. They're not saying, well, it's okay to commit adultery in this age. Thank God for the grace of God. And in fact, what's funny is the Corinthians kind of went that far because the, the, one, the one guy that gets excommunicated from that church by Paul that we know of, is, that's the guy who takes his father's wife. It's not his mother, but it's his mother-in-law, and he's sleeping with her. Gross! But they were celebrating it. So that's why we turn here, because we are. Take, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Is that gone? No. And notice Jesus says here, look at Matthew 5.43. This is just one example. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So, here, what Jesus, this is one of six. This is the last of six examples that Jesus gives us where he says, opening, you have heard it said, and then he goes to, but I say to you. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. That's the first, this is the first one, I can't remember. I say to you, don't even look at a woman to lust for her. So what is Jesus doing here? He's saying that, yeah, these commands are a part of an eternal, moral, ethical nature of God. God is righteous. God is true. God is love. God is fair and just. I should not take my neighbor's wife because it's not fair and just. I should not commit a... a, fornication or anything because you know those sins are against the love of my creator who who has given me a proper place for that expression and so what jesus does for us here is show us that the commands that were in the law that were of a moral ethical nature are of an eternal nature of course they were in the law in, in the law god is saying this is my will for my nation and he's going to leave out goodness and righteousness and truth and not lying, not stealing. That's a part of justice. But what Jesus tells us here is that what you haven't seen in the Mosaic Law is how deep these commands go. Because they're not... See, if in Israel you said, well, look, you can see that I love my neighbor. 
I, I go to all my neighbors every day, and I help them with their yard work. I help them take the trash out. I, I pray for them. I do good things to them. And <clears throat> all of us would have to say, well, yeah, it really does look like you love your neighbor. But what if deep in your heart you hate their guts? You just do this. You wish they would die. You know, if you drove home and there was a for sale sign on the on the thing and and there was, you know, a wedding, uh, sorry, a funeral in the newspaper, you'd be like, oh, thank God. Right? Like, what if in your heart you hate them? The people don't see this, but God does. And Jesus is telling us that, look, these commands go right to the depth of your heart. And in there they are fulfilled. And this even, well, I say, okay, uh, have I broken the law? Yeah. There are times that I have yelled at my neighbor and everybody knew it and heard it. It was quite overt. But now that you put it this way, I don't know if I've ever loved my neighbor. Has there ever been the inkling in my soul that I, you know, I really don't like you? And we're condemned even more. And then he says something amazing. He says, if you love your enemies now and pray for those who persecute you, you'll be sons of your Father in heaven. So, I've got a, the people who do this are sons of God's, of God and daughters of God. And so the question begs, do I fulfill the commandment and then become a son? You know, do I, do I really work hard at this? That through and through in my heart, down to the depth of my soul, that I really love my neighbor, and then, then I can apply to become a son? Or does God make me a son or a daughter and then give me the ability to do exactly this? And thank God it's the later. Because none of us could do it. But what God does, see, Jesus sets us up for this. I'm going to tell you what the command really means, and all of you are going to be condemned to the depth of yourself. And then I'm going to show you that to do this, you have to be a son of God. So, I'm going to make you a son of God. And then we find out, and this, again, it's the temptation of the law. Go to Galatians. I don't want to keep you too much longer here. I've just returned. I'm not going to squeeze this in. Just a couple passages in Galatians and then we'll pick this up again tomorrow. Look at Galatians 3.19. Now remember, the law is holy and good and it was given by God as a gift to the old world. It's not a part of the new. So Paul writes in Galatians 3.19. Again, Galatians 3. Uh, if you want to um, further your education on this subject that we're going to spend uh, today, Wednesday and Thursday on, you could read Galatians, either the book of Galatians over and over or just Galatians 3 and 4 over and over. Shorten it up. So he says in 3.19, why the law then? Great question, Paul. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed, who he clearly says here in Galatians 3 is Jesus Christ, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Why the law? It was added because we're sinners. Did we sin before the law? Well, of course. But when the law came... It increased our sin. This Paul writes in Romans 5. It increased our sin. Why? Because we had more laws to break. And, as Paul writes also in Romans, that when our flesh heard about the do this and don't do that, for whatever crazy reason, it really revved itself up to break those things. Now, I, I comprehend that because that's what I did. still do it. <laughs> Sometimes. You know, when someone says, you better not do that, and what does your flesh say? Oh, you know, the hell with you, man. I'm going to do it even more than you think. Why do we do that? Well, God is revealing something to us. This is why it's a gift. The law is a gift. 
to tell us all that not one of you can make yourself righteous. None of you. By the works of the law? Are you serious? You think? And this is what happened in Galatia. Paul went in there. So he, when he writes to them, he said he was there. He was sick, and there was some. He had some uh, bad physical ailment when he was among them, and he ministered to them. The churches began there, several churches. And when he left, either amongst their own rank, we can't tell, or our outsiders, someone came in and said, "No, no, Paul's." I mean, Paul's right on some things, but he's not right on everything. Paul didn't tell you about how you need to keep the law of Moses. And to the point where they got the Galatians to consider circumcision. They're almost all of them Gentiles. They're uncircumcised. And they were like, well, you know, the, the sign of the Mosaic law is circumcision. So you guys all got to get circumcised. And they'd be like, is there another church I can go to? Is there like a Baptist church around or something? So, this is how it works. But let me set this up. Because in, for instance, if we're not under the law, what does this mean? Because, again, I, I still have the morals of the law. i got to love my neighbor. i got to love God. I, I can't be stealing and doing all the other stuff that are in the law that are of an ethical nature. The law was given to the old world, but the law was given without supernatural help. You were on your own. You weren't really on your own. You know what you had? You had faith. Faith in the Lord who gave the law. So you attempted it, of course, but your faith was your power. And your power for what? Well, the temptations of the flesh, the temptations of the world, the temptations of the devil that would come upon you. Your power to keep this was faith. You believed and so you tried to do everything right. And we see how most of them did in the Old Testament. They failed. All of us would have. The Jews are not special on this. No matter who God picked to be his client nation, if it wasn't Abraham it would have been, or anybody else he picked, it would have been the same thing. But even the great people in the Old Testament like David and Moses, did they fail at it? They did. They failed. Because what did they have? They had faith, and that was it. So by faith, I know what God wants me to be. I love my Lord, and so I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. But no supernatural help. What do we mean by supernatural help? First, does God force us to obey? No. <clears throat> help is assistance, not forcing. Help from God is assisting us. And so, <clears throat> if we're being assisted, we're calling the shots. Same in Israel. If you're going by faith, it's up to you. Right, Just like Joshua said to them, choose the Lord or choose idols. Make your choice. God said to them, choose life or choose death. Make your choice. You have to choose. And what in Israel, in the old world, with the law, you're going to choose. And by faith, you're going to try, try, try. But now, we call the shots and we have faith, but we have something else. Someone else. And Galatians is all about this. You have him. This is promised by Ezekiel. Five, no, where is Ezekiel? 500 years before the birth of Christ. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances, not my audiences. This is supernatural help and is given to every church age believer. Every one of us. He's not going to force you to walk in His statutes. But when you choose by faith to walk in them, He's going to do what it takes to make your walk a success. That's the gift of the church. Yeah, people have said, well, you know, I got, you know, it's a feeling, the Holy Spirit. It's, you know, getting back to the more, the more extreme Pentecostals that it's this, you know, feeling or whatever. Uh, it's not. 
as help. You know, to accomplish what we got to do has nothing to do with ecstatic, you know, flip-flopping on the ground kind of thing. It has to do with truly loving your enemy, to, to name one. So I hope you see how this works. I finish this here. The morals and ethics of the law are not gone, but they are no longer the sole source of our power. Before the law said you ought to do this, and that ought, you ought, was the power that drove the old world. If you had faith in God, you did what you ought to do. At least you tried. The more faith you had, the more drive you had. This is clearer in the Old Testament saints. You know, why does Saul fail so bad, but David does so well? It's because David loves the Lord and Saul loves himself. His faith, Saul's faith was in him. David's faith was in God. So David excelled far more when it came to the law. <clears throat> the more faith you had, the more drive you had. Conviction in your own conscience is what we ought to do. I'm convicted. I should do this. But that's not supernatural power. But then came the crucifixion of Christ. And through his crucifixion, the old self was crucified. My sin was removed, crucified. And the resurrection came to me, new life. And every believer in this age is given the Holy Spirit within. Now, the power to do righteousness comes from the Spirit. If I choose to walk this walk, I know that the Spirit is going to make it successful. It's not a feeling. There's no procedure. It's, look, where are you going to go? Are you going to do it by faith? And if you do, the promise is that the Spirit will accomplish it. And so I, you know, I'm, I am at the helm. He's not, I don't, God isn't speaking to me and saying, you know, take a left here or take a right. I have to make decisions based on the Word of God, based on the truth. I, have, I am stuck with those decisions. Right? When you're tempted to do the wrong, when you know it's the right, you can... I suggest, yeah, pray. Pray, pray, pray. All right, I'm done praying. Ah, it's still there. Still there. Right? You can almost feel it physically sometimes. And here, when God says, you stick with this, I will get you through it. And that now, and this again, we, I was going to go all kind of, tomorrow we'll see it in Galatians, that not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 7, 16. Walk by the Spirit. And you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. We think this is some, it is a supernatural thing, but it's based on our decisions. We decide to walk the way that we are supposed to walk. And then we know with confidence that God the Holy Spirit is going to give us the power and ability and wisdom to do it. We don't feel him, but it's going to happen. And that's this age. That's the new world. What does Satan want you to do? <clears throat> that whole spirit stuff is a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. Right? You ever felt anything? Right? You're still a sinner, aren't you? You still It didn't work all the time, did it? So why don't we go back to this is what you ought to do, this is what you not ought to do, and do it yourself. Right? You, do, you can do this. Do it yourself. <clears throat> go back to the old world where it's all effort. And yeah, we effort. But with, tru with the truth of this, we relax and know that the Spirit is in us to accomplish it. Satan wants you back in the old world. So we pray, lead us not into temptation. I don't want that old world, Lord. I want new world all day today. Let's pray. <coughs> Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for prayer. Uh, thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit the third member of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with you and the Son, who is in us, as well as the Son is in us and you are in us, to accomplish your good pleasure. 
And us, Father, we're tempted. We get make dumb decisions. We get distracted. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your forgiveness. Do we get it perfectly every any day? Do any day we get this perfect? The answer is no. And that's why forgive us our debts or our sins. We thank you for your forgiveness. We also thank you that through forgiveness, every day is a day in which we can pursue the new and living way by means of God the Holy Spirit and trust in Him, trust in You, and really pull it off. We thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.